Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. So for a while now, I've wanted to do a podcast episode on the ECIR approach to testing and treating metabolic-related laminitis and founder in horses. ECIR group is Equine Cushings and Insulin Resistance Group, and it is a volunteer-based group with decades of experience helping owners rehab their laminitic horses for free. Dr. Kathleen Gustafson, Director and Research Advisor for ECIR, and Dr. Janie Kluwer, a small animal veterinarian who has been the veterinary advisor for the ECIR group in the past, both agreed to speak with me on a conference call about the subject. They were both so patient and knowledgeable with all my questions, and I was so glad I could get them both on the phone. So thank you both so much for being willing to talk with me. I've been wanting to do this for a while, and now, given the time of year, I just think it's a perfect time. So uh, why don't we start with, obviously, you know, both of you are so passionate about horses with metabolic issues. So how did that come about? Um, You know, what got you started onto this path? And did you ever think that you'd end up, you know, giving advice to horse owners and, you know, other equine professionals about endocrinopathic issues? Yeah, Amy, you want to go first? No, you start. Okay, so I'll start. Um, Well, it came about it two ways. So I I haven't owned that many horses in my life, but the one that I had that lived the longest and was with me for the longest time, she never had anything wrong with her, ever. And uh, she lived to be like 34 years old, 34, 35. And my husband bought a horse, and she was aging. And one fall, she came down with laminitis, and, you know, we didn't know quite what to make of it. It wasn't very severe. And then she kept having these repeated laminitis, and then her hair got really long. And and again, we didn't know quite what to make of it. So finally, the vet said, well, she's got Cushing's disease. There was no testing done at the time. This was like in the mid-80s. And he says, she's got Cushing's disease. There's nothing you can do about it. And besides, you can't afford the medication anyway. So it was nice of him to make that assessment for us. And so uh, we got the opportunity to see what Cushing's looks like when it progresses naturally, which is not very good. And she lived about three years, had repeated bouts of laminitis. We always had to keep her on a dry lot. We never quite knew what was going on. And she had the full spectrum of muscle wasting and, you know, the super long hair and the whole thing until one day she just collapsed and died. So that was my first introduction to Cushing or PPID. And then after my mare died, I bought a gelding who was kind of tall and thin and not in the best shape nutritionally. So that same vet, I asked him what I should do. And he says, oh, just turn him out in your pasture. That'll fix everything. So I did that. And uh, he went from being really thin to extremely obese. And it crept up over a period of months so that I didn't really notice it. But then I started to notice that he got a crest on his neck. And then I noticed that his sheath was getting really big and fat. And then I noticed that he didn't really want to go very much. He was kind of lethargic and ouchy on gravel. And then he was reluctant to canter and just a bunch of things. So by this time, it was fall. And then I had read an article about pasture laminitis. And I saw a reference to Dr. Kellen and just kind of put it in the back of my mind and 
but in the meantime, I recognized, I started to recognize what was going on. So I started buying all these supplements, you know, that were supposed to fix insulin resistance in horses. Of course, they didn't work very well, or they worked well enough to make me think that I was really affecting a difference. And of course, at the time, we didn't realize that insulin was the cause of laminitis, that high blood insulin was the cause of laminitis in, in horses. So uh, winter came, he got a big, heavy snow, and I thought it was absolutely safe to turn him out on the pasture. And I did, and he pawed through the snow and ate the grass under the snow. And by that night, he was uh, had the typical stance of laminitis, rocked back on his back legs and clearly laminitic. Called the same vet, and he says, oh, just give him two flakes of hay a day and make sure it's really bad hay, and, and uh, he'll get over it. So at that time, I found that reference to Dr. Kellen, got on the ECIR group, was absolutely devastated because I thought, here, I've only owned this horse six months, and, and now I've killed him because he's got laminitis and there's no cure. And the ECIR group, the volunteers on that group, straightened me out and said, look, this is what you need to do. You need to feed this amount of hay. It needs to be good quality hay. You need to get it balanced. You need to do this. You need to do that. I did all those things. His laminitic pain went away in about 48 hours because it really wasn't that bad of a case. And uh, fortunately, there was no rotation or sinking. So he went into, after he recovered, went into an exercise program and he's been fine ever since. And that was about 15 years ago. And the reason I got involved with the group was because of the volunteer service that they provide. When people are faced with this, and it is devastating, to, it's, it's overwhelming, it's devastating, and you think you have no control over the situation. And what the volunteers do there is they help you help yourself. And they give you the knowledge you need. They encourage you to do these things that are tested and proven and have good scientific evidence to support them. And and they help you help yourself. So it's not a, there's no magic bullet or quick or easy fix. And so after that experience and working with these people, I realized that I, I should do the same thing. And so we just pay it forward by providing a service to other people who are overwhelmed. Yeah, I've been a member for a few years now, and I think it's just a great resource that I can share with clients and use myself. And so, Janie, do you have a little insight into your journey to where you are now? Yeah, and my journey was actually very much like like Kathleen's. I was fortunate enough that I came onto the journey later when there was more information available. Although, the, let me think, this is 2008, there still wasn't tons of information in the mainstream veterinary world. Both of our horses came down with a really devastating laminitis in the middle of winter within three weeks of each other. And the precipitating events, I believe, were not only cold weather, but Christmas Eve carrots, I'm sorry to say. And I thought I had been doing such a good job. You know, they they got hay, they got pasture, obviously not the winter up here in Smithers. Um, I didn't feed them tons of oats. They just got a little bit of oats to put a, a feed supplement in. And as Kathleen says, this it's devastating. When your horses come down with laminitis, it is just devastating. So I asked all my vet friends, and nobody could kind of come up with anything. And interestingly enough, the summer before, the one gelding had a fatty crest on his neck and a fatty sheath. So I got a horse vet out and said, you know, what do you think this is? He said, well, just lack of exercise. We did a standard blood test, and he was low on thyroid. And the vet said, well, I wouldn't worry about that. 
it's all fine. But that was such a big red flag. The crusty neck, the swollen sheath. He was an insulin-resistant horse just waiting for something to tip him over the edge into frank laminitis. So when they did come down with laminitis, I was tearing my hair out, as you do, and asking everybody everything and going everywhere. And one of my vet friends went on the Veterinary Information Network, bless her heart, found winter laminitis, and it linked to Dr. Kellen and an article she had written. And then that's how I started with the ECIR group. Jumped on there, did my first posts, and started following their advice, and that saved my horses. I didn't have the same dramatic results that Kathleen did because our two horses were in a rather more severe state. But by the end of summer, they were sound, and we were riding both of them up until their early 30s, and uh, they both lived to be 35. So thanks to Dr. Kellen and the ECIR group, it saved their lives and not only saved their lives but gave them really good quality of life from then on which was great so as kathleen says i like to pay it forward so i jumped in to <laughs> learning about metabolic courses through all my texts and went to conferences and did all that kind of stuff so that's how i got there because my horses despite the fact that i was a practicing veterinarian at the time i did not recognize what was going on with my horses yeah. talking but true yeah. Um, and you're a large animal veterinarian? No, I'm a small animal veterinarian. So there's oh. some, I guess, pathetic excuse for that. <laughs> so now I'm a small animal veterinarian with a particular interest in metabolic horses. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so I get all the phone calls from the clinic right now when there's a metabolic horse happening. Wow. Yeah, and actually it's, it's fun. We do have a new vet who is a recent graduate, and he is completely on board because now that information is, is trickling into the vet schools. Where, yeah. you know, even 10, 20 years ago, they're like, pergolide only came to be known as a really good, effective medication maybe 25 years ago, Kathleen, something like that? Yes, yeah. something like that. I know my vet thought was completely out of our reach, and I'm sure that he never recommended it for anyone, to tell you yeah. the truth, because it's probably a rare treatment. Yeah, I just wanted to add here, and of course we're not vet bashing or anything. It was just a matter of people learning things. But after I implemented the the plan that the uh, group gave me, you know, for the feeding the right amount of hay and and those types of things, and balancing the diet, and Joe made such a dramatic turnaround. The vet came out, you know, for a follow up visit. And I showed him everything about how the hay was balanced and the nutrition, you know, the nutrients in the hay, all of this. And, he's, and I said, and you know, and he's, he's down now. And, and uh, he says, yeah, that's, that's what you'd like to think. And so I, uh, I decided that was the last time he was going to come out to our place. So the next group that I, of veterinarians that I uh, contacted to come out, it turns out they were, they were very young, recent graduates, and had been trained in metabolic disease. And when they saw it, they were just blown away. And so they asked me to, to uh, help their clients with their diets and help them, you know, get on board with, with feeding the correct way and, and how to manage their horses with insulin resistance. How cool is that? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I start off here by asking Janie about PPID, also known as Cushing's. As a veterinarian, Janie has a clear understanding of all the functions that occur in the body and what goes wrong in a metabolic horse. And it might get a little technical. You might hear us mention ACTH a few times, which is a hormone produced by the pituitary gland. 
Janie will explain how that happens and what it does, but I want to give context that a horse with PPID won't properly regulate ACTH and that can cause all kinds of problems. So, you know, given the time of year, I was wondering if we could start off with some questions about Cushing's or PPID. And I don't know if, Janie, if you want to kind of explain what is PPID and what causes it, or really either of you, I just didn't know if you had a veterinarian take on it. Yeah, I'm more than happy to. PPID is a pituitary pars intermediate dysfunction. And one reason it's a good idea to think of it that way instead of as Cushing's disorder is that Cushing's disorder that we commonly see in dogs is very, very different from Cushing's disorder in horses. Cushing's disorder in dogs is always a tumor, sometimes benign, sometimes not. Cushing's disorder in horses is not so much a tumor as an oddball response of the pituitary to a loss of the feedback control that starts in the hypothalamus, goes to the pituitary, goes to the adrenal glands, and back. The neurons that are responsible for controlling that feedback loop become gradually lost due to oxidative stress. This seems to be almost a a horse peculiar thing. The horses as they age lose these dopaminergic neurons and the neurons that that produce dopamine so that hormone production goes unchecked. Normally what happens is the body puts out cortisol because it's an important hormone for controlling lots of things. If there's enough cortisol in the system that feeds back to the hypothalamus and the pituitary and they both reduce the production of ACTH or the pituitary reduces the production of ACTH so that cortisol levels don't get out of control. In the PPID horse, that feedback control is lost, so it doesn't matter how much cortisol is in the blood, the pituitary, the intermediate pituitary, just keeps cranking it out, and that portion of the pituitary gets larger. It gets a kind of an adenoma. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger because it's working so hard producing ACTH. In the normal horse, ACTH is produced in the anterior pituitary. In the PPID horse, that uh, intermediate pituitary just goes berserk, pumping stuff out. So what causes... Cushing's disorder or PPID in horses is basically a loss of neurons in the brain and a loss of feedback control. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of things working, but I totally get what you're saying. Uh, And so what I hear a lot from clients or friends is that their horse can't have PPID because they aren't overweight or they don't have the fatty deposits. And it sounds like they are often equating PPID with insulin resistance. Uh, but we know that they're both two distinct issues. So I was wondering if you could explain the differences and similarities between PPID and IR? Yes, absolutely. Because for a long time, until fairly recently, again, 10, 15 years maybe, insulin resistance or equine metabolic syndrome was even called peripheral Cushing's. It wasn't recognized as a separate entity. And so even today, people conflate the two. They think that they are the same or that they are related. In fact, the only thing they really share are some common clinical signs because in a PPID horse, you can have those fatty deposits. You can have a high insulin because of all the circulating cortisol. In an EMS horse, equine metabolic syndrome horse, you will have those fatty deposits and laminitis, but it's a metabolic type, a genetic type. It's not a disease. It's a metabolic type, and it is controlled by diet, whereas Cushing's disorder or PPID is actually a disease and needs medication to control it. So 
Conflating IR and PPID is extremely common. They are dealt with differently in the sense that EMS needs a controlled diet, PPID needs a controlled diet and medication. You can have a PPID horse that is not in any way insulin resistant as long as the PPID is controlled. You know, if you have a uh, a thoroughbred or a standard bred with PPID, as long as you keep the ACTH under control, you will not have an issue with insulin because those breeds, generally speaking, those breeds are not genetically predisposed to insulin resistance. If you have, say, a pony or like I had an Arab, or I still have an Arab, with PPID, you must be on top of the diet at all times as well because those breeds can be genetically prone to insulin resistance. So, clinical signs, the difference between insulin resistance and PPID. An IR horse will have those fatty deposits. They can drink and pee excessively. They will often eat ravenously and they get laminitis. A PPID horse will definitely pee and drink excessively. They might have fatty deposits, but they will also show muscle loss if things aren't controlled and they definitely get laminitis, often from a slightly different, like we don't really know the mechanism behind laminitis in a Cushing horse. We definitely know in insulin resistant horses, the mechanism is high insulin in the blood that directly causes laminitis. And you had mentioned a little bit about the diet and how with EMS or IR horses, you really want to focus on the diet. And with PPID, you really want to focus on the medication first. And I don't know if Kathleen wanted to jump in on this, but what does that diet look like? And is it as important for a PPID horse to have that controlled diet? Yes and no. So, you know, I, I get a lot of questions like, uh, is it okay to put my horse on pasture? Is it okay to feed him this? Is it okay to feed him that? Well, the bottom line is, what is their insulin? If their insulin is under control, so let's say you have a PPID horse that's adequately treated, is getting the right dose of pergolide to control its uh, ACTH, it has normal insulin, and there's no sign that this horse has issues with high blood insulin or controlling insulin, then, then that horse that's in work should eat like a horse that's in work. So in other words, uh, you don't have to keep the uh, sugar and starch levels below 10% or, or whatever. It's, it's less of a focus. Let's put it that way. So if the horse needs more calories and more carbohydrates to maintain weight, then that's a safe condition. On the flip side, if you have a horse with PPID and EMS, then you do have to control the diet and you do have to pay attention to the, the carbohydrates in the diet. So the carbohydrates in particular are those carbohydrates that stimulate glucose and subsequently insulin. And those are the simple sugars in the diet, which consist of sucrose, fructose, and glucose, and also starch in the diet. So those, the sum of those should be let 10% or less for a safe diet for an insulin-resistant horse. Now, I know a lot of people still use non-structural carbohydrate, so that's NSC, and they use that as a threshold, and the threshold can, you know, depending on who's, who you're reading, can range from 15% to 10% to 12% or whatever, but the ECIR group does not support the use of NSC in nutrition. It's, it's a good plant biology metric, but we don't find it relevant for equine nutrition in this particular case because the NSC component also contains fructans, so both long and short-chain fructans in forage, and those are 
prebiotic fiber, and they do not stimulate an insulin or glucose or insulin response in mammals because mammals cannot digest fructans. Uh, fructans have to be fermented in the in the gut. So yes and no. Yes and no. It just depends. If you if insulin's under control, then you have more leeway. If it isn't, uh, then you need to take the necessary steps to feed a good nutritious diet to a horse with EMS. Yeah. So if you're noticing some symptoms, you know, maybe the horse isn't full-blown laminitic, but you're suspecting there's some metabolic issue going on, what kind of tests should you look into for that horse? That is such a good question. What we recommend, and you can find this in a nice, concise, and complete form on the ecirhorse.org website. So if you have a younger horse and you suspect equine metabolic syndrome, you want to do a single blood pull, non-fasting, and no grain. So have hay in front of the horse for at least four hours up to the time of the blood pull. Get your vet to come out, do a single blood pull, and you are going to ask for insulin and glucose. We used to ask for leptin too, but it has been shown not to be really prognostic for laminitis and IR. It's just a, a, what would you call it? It's a nice to know. If your horse is leptin resistant and has high leptin, it, it, they probably eat like a pig. Well, you can tell that by watching your horse eat. So get insulin and glucose for the EMS test. If your horse is older than sort of eight years, you should also ask for an endogenous ACTH, which is the diagnostic test for Cushing's or PPID. There will be changes in ACTH over the season because that is a normal thing. ACTH should be at its lowest from sort of February through June. It starts to creep up in July. It'll be at its highest sometime September, October. But a normal horse will still not have as high an ACTH as a PPID horse. The one exception to that is in early PPID, you might not see the big increase. And in that case, if you suspect PPID, you do what's called a thyroid hormone stimulating test or TSH test. So that is a double blood pull. The vet comes out and pulls the first lot of blood, gives a TSH, and then pulls the second lot of blood to measure the, the response of the horse to the TSH. So that's for early PPID horses. Most horses don't need to have a TSH test unless you have a strong suspicion that your horse has PPID and the ACTH keeps coming back normal, then you would do that. Otherwise, the ACTH test by itself is very diagnostically accurate. And is there a certain time of year that you prefer to do the the TSH? Or I've always called it the TRH stimulation test, but are they both the same? Yeah, thyroid-releasing hormone stimulation test, yeah, TRH is fine. Right now, we don't have really good references for doing a TRH test during the seasonal rise. So they normally recommend you don't do it from September to the end of December. And otherwise, you can do it in all the other months of the year. And for actually- diagnosing Cushing's, if you have an early PPID horse and you pull blood in May and the ACTH is normal, that doesn't necessarily tell you that your horse is normal. Most of these guys show up as abnormal early on during the seasonal rise. Right. So if you can only test once, I would test kind of in September if you're not sure your horse is PPID. If your horse is fully diagnosed with PPID and is on medication and you're testing to make sure your medication is doing the job, then you need to test in July and August to catch any seasonal rise before it happens. 
Okay, yeah, definitely. That makes sense. And I, I do want to talk more about the seasonal rise, but I had a quick question that I thought of when you were talking about testing for insulin resistance or EMS. I have a lot of pushback from vets about pulling glucose because they said it isn't very stable, I guess. And I didn't know if you had any insight about pulling the insulin and glucose and, and how to make sure that that's accurate once you send it off for testing. I do have some insight into that because um, some people like to do a, a Barnside glucose test with a glucometer for that very same reason. However, glucose is adequately stable if you do one of two things, or both things is even better. If you pull glucose into a gray-topped tube, that will stop the metabolism of the red blood cells that can affect the glucose levels. And the other thing is, if you pull your glucose and insulin from the, you, know, you want to send it off in the same tube, which is perfectly adequate, you need to chill it as soon as possible. You need to spin it within two hours and then send it on ice, and then you'll be fine. Oh. I have done in the past, and this is with dogs looking for uh, pancreatic tumors and stuff and insulinomas, glucose is perfectly stable if you treat the blood properly. Oh, if you drive around with the blood in your car at 100 degrees Fahrenheit and it takes you four hours to get back to your clinic, then yeah, you won't get an accurate result. But you won't get an accurate result on the insulin either. So the other nice thing about sending glucose and insulin off at the same time is if you get the results back and the glucose appears to be too low to sustain life, then you know the blood's been mishandled and the insulin results aren't uh, accurate either. Yeah. So that's why I like to do them both and send them both off together. Right. Awesome. Well, thank you. That was really helpful. <laughs> so I know we are jumping around a little bit, but going back to the seasonal rise, I know that we were talking about how starting in July and through the fall, we are looking at this seasonal rise of ACTH in all horses. And I didn't know if you could talk a bit about what that means uh, and why that happens and what sort of symptoms we should look for if that's affecting the horse. All right, so in the normal horse and most normal mammals that live in the temperate zone or at least evolved in the temperate zone, you need to get ready for winter. You need to start packing on the fat. You need to grow more hair. That's the purpose of the seasonal rise in ACTH is to do those exact things. Pack on a bit more fat, grow a bit more hair because ACTH not only causes increased cortisol, which causes increased insulin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's also linked with prolactin and other hormones that help with hair growth, melanocytes, and so on. Anyway, so every normal animal has in a temperate zone has to get ready for winter. So there's a normal rise in ACTH to do that. In the PPID horse, that rise becomes abnormal. And so what you often see as the first sign of a problem is laminitis in the autumn because the ACTH starts to go through the roof, the insulin goes through the roof, and they get fall laminitis. That is often the first sign. The usual signs that people say, which is the long curly hair coat with the Cushing's horse, that's a late sign. Okay, They can have had PPID for a number of years before you start to see that long hair coat. So that's why it's important to keep an eye on your horse. If you see ouchiness at all in the autumn, you need to run a test to make sure we don't have early PPID. Don't wait for a full-blown laminitis and don't wait for those other signs that, you know, the loss of weight and the long curly hair coat because that those are late signs. So for your average horse owner, once your horse gets past a certain age, when you do your routine blood screens, do them in the fall and run an ACTH as well as an insulin, as well as the, you know, 
CBC and all that other good stuff, if you can do it. And in this for either of you or both of you, because I know that you both have experience with treating metabolic horses and seeing improvement. What are some symptoms that resolved once you either, you know, changed the diet or incorporated pergolide for PPID horse, or maybe even some symptoms that we might have originally not realized were caused by those hormonal issues that resolved after treatment? Kathleen, can you not only talk about Joe, who was a dramatic responder to correct diet, but a little bit about Hank, who was completely normal, relatively speaking, except for his nutrition? Yeah. So, uh, like I said earlier, unfortunately, we didn't have any experience with medication and TPID. So when I'm on the list and I see people's horses who live years after getting pergolide and and then they're on a proper diet and have good nutrition and well managed um, it, it's like night and day compared to our our experience with our horse who only lived a few years after the diagnosis one thing before I get into the experience with my horses is something that Janie said about the seasonal rise I think because it's so subtle you know you have this fall laminitis and then you You know, if you don't do anything, you treat your horse for laminitis and then springtime comes and gee, they're all better and they shed out the first year and you're like, oh, wow, you know, I don't know what happened, but he's okay now. And then uh, you think your horse is okay and then you go until the next fall and it happens again. And the, the disease is so subtly progressive that you can be lulled into this experience and not realize that your horse has PPID until you've had repeated bouts of laminitis and then finally reach that diagnosis. So recognizing fall laminitis and testing then is is a really good way to to get ahead of this so that you can have many, many years left with your horse, unlike the experience we had. Now, my experience was in largely with EMS and hyperinsulinemia in our horses. So my my gelding was the one who experienced the uh, laminitic event. So uh, after we got him straightened out, then we got another horse for my husband. And when I got him, he was this kind of beautiful bronze metallic color. It was just really unusual. So when we brought him home, I told my husband, we're going to put him on the same, you know, every horse needs to be on a nutritionally balanced diet to make sure they get adequate nutrients and minerals that are deficient need to be replaced and minerals need to be in balance with each other. So we put him on the same diet that Joe was getting. And within a couple of months, he turned black. So he went from this gorgeous, bronzy, you know, weird metallic-y sheen to this, uh, to a really lovely uh, black horse. I mean, not completely black. I'd call him like a seal bay, but his coat was really, really dark, and he stayed that way from then on. We recently rehomed him, but he's on the same minerals, and, and uh, his, his previous owner, I gave him back to his previous owner, said that she had never seen him that color before and she was really impressed by it. So that's just a matter of of meeting their nutritional needs, basically. Yeah, that's awesome. I know. And and is that mostly with balancing the copper and the zinc to the iron and the diet and the or in the hay? Yeah, basically. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's I don't think it's fairly well known. It seems to be fairly well known amongst ourselves that that the two most common deficiencies in in hay are uh, zinc and copper. And this is worldwide. It isn't just unique to us. But there are some regional differences. For example, I live in an area that has really high calcium in the hay because our soils are high in calcium carbonate. So we have to supplement. Uh, We're always 
nearly deficient in phosphorus and low in magnesium. So when I give those two minerals, I see the effect of correcting those mineral deficiencies. Somebody else in another part of the country, for example, Oregon, where they have you know, abundant magnesium in the hay, and those horses are getting their needs met, you know, two to three times over the recommended daily allowance, giving them five grams of magnesium is not going to make any kind of a difference because they already have it. They already have what they need. So, you know, why waste your money on supplements that are, you know, that may not be necessary? And another, and and while I'm kind of harping on the subject, I know a lot of people get uh, really brand-specific regarding minerals. You know, they're wedded to brands because they see a difference or they may have have seen a difference. But the bottom line is is that the the elemental mineral, you know, zinc, copper, uh, magnesium, whatever, is the same in every supplement. The elemental mineral is the same. It's the amount that they receive that makes a supplement effective. So knowing the amount you need to give and correcting that mineral deficiency is what makes the difference, not the brand. Yeah, and I see the same thing. And, you know, when I go to clients before exploring hay testing, I usually just give them a list of good supplements and say, you know, these are four supplements that are all good and fairly comparable. You know, feed whichever one your horse will eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's always the issue, palatability. But, yeah. Yeah. But there's, there are ways to convince a horse to eat things, you know, start slow, you know, work your way up to the total dose. Eventually they'll cave in. Yeah. <laughs> um, and obviously, I know you talked about the coat changes and I, you know, being a hoof care provider, I'm always obsessed with the hoof changes. Do you notice anything outside of hopefully the laminitis getting under control, like changes in the feet? I think we have several pictures on the on the outreach group showing the difference between a proper mineral supplementation and not. And even in my own horse, I've been kind of thinking about what I tend to do is I tend to balance to the hay and then... Uh, summer comes around and then there's pasture and do I balance to the pasture and it changes every day. And, and so, you know, I, I get kind of lax in the summertime about adequately supplementing. And I've been threatening to make a, a regional mix um, for our area for people who have, you know, constantly changing hay or just just don't want to do the analysis. So I've got about 10 years worth of data, and I finally put it all together and came up with a, a quote, regional mix, we'll call it. And I've been testing it on on my own horse uh, for the summer, and and I feel really bad for being lax because the quality of its hoof right now uh, and that new growth is so remarkable that even a regional mix will, will make a difference. Yeah, and I've seen the same thing for ones in my area, too. And, and kind of along the same lines, but on the medication side of things, I know people who will have a horse test positive for PPID and they will want to start treating with herbs before pergolide. And I know the ECIR group is clear that medication is the only way to control ACTH. So why might herbs not be an option here? Or, or are there any herbs that might be an option in addition to the medication? Yeah, so I, I'm going to speak a little bit to that, and then Janie can kind of flesh it out. So remember what I just talked about, about how it, how subtle it is and how it just kind of creeps up on you? So, you know, that first year that you get small laminitis, you may give the chase tree berry, yeah. And, you know, it does have some effects. So in the, in the mild case of the, of the disease, you may get some effects. But remember, come 
spring, that, that ACTH is going to drop back down and you're going to be walking around going, wow, Vitex scared my horse. And the next fall, here it comes again and again and again. And eventually, uh, the effects of Vitex controlling some symptoms becomes no longer effective. The bottom line is that this is a disease of uh, the neurotransmitter dopamine is lost and pergolide acts as a dopamine agonist. It's basically acting like dopamine. So what you're doing with pergolide is replacing the lost dopamine, and the herbs just simply can't do that. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And uh, because the pergolide acts as a neurotransmitter, in a sense, it, it mimics a neurotransmitter, rather, that means dosing it is different than how you would dose, say, a pain reliever or an antibiotic. Those are dosed by weight. Dosing with pergolide is dosed to effect. So as Dr. Kellen says, the correct dose of pergolide is the one that controls the ACTH. There is a kind of a target dose that many horses start out on where you taper the dose up to one milligram and then retest and see how things are. But for example, Merlin, who lived to be 35 and was just as sound as a bell right up until, until he died, he was on 24 milligrams of pergolide a day. Wow. And man, he looked so good. Yeah, and Maggie was on 20 milligrams a day. They both started out at one, and that worked for a while. But because Cushing's is a progressive disease, you can't actually stop the loss of those neurons that we have been able to figure out a way to do that anyway. What you need to do is keep replacing the lost dopamine over time. And so you have to keep increasing the pergolide in order to get that done. Now, Dr. Kellen initially did some field trials with Chase Tree Berry or Vitex, and also I think Lip Hook in the UK did some similar things. Yeah, it will help with some symptoms initially, but it will not control the ACTH. So all the horses on Vitex did have some symptomatic relief, particularly with the hair coat issue, but the ACTH was not controlled. So you're not able to to slow the train, so to speak, by using only herbs. You, you need to get that pergolide on board. Where Vitex is actually really useful is with a horse already on pergolide and it's just not helping out with the hair coat, you can add a little bit of Vitex there and often because it's a different mechanism or a slightly different mechanism, it will help them shed out. But as a sole use for Cushing's, it doesn't cut the mustard. Yeah. and. Uh- you know, I have a few clients who, and I, I know that you see this too, when they start the pergolide, they get that pergolide veil, well, they'll go off their feed or they'll, you know, become a little lethargic or depressed. And first, like, you know, what do you recommend to make sure that they're getting that full dose and eating their food? And how do you kind of combat that that response when they first start pergolide? Well... There are two ways, and if you use them both, you're almost guaranteed, not quite, but almost guaranteed not to have a pergolide veil. The first thing you do is you don't just start out at one milligram. You give them 0.25 milligrams every day for four days. Then you go up to half a milligram every day for four days. Then 0.75 milligrams every day for four days. And then you're up to your one milligram. So slowly tapering up like that does help a lot of horses. The other thing is an adaptogenic mixture called APF, Advanced Protection Formula, which is produced by Auburn Labs. 
and that seems to almost eliminate pergolide veil on horses. You would still taper your, your dose up to be on the safe side, but if you start your APF a couple days before you start your pergolide and then keep it on board for a couple of weeks, that will often help with the pergolide veil. And different horses have different susceptibilities as well to whether or not they will get the pergolide veil. So some horses, when you say increase from 2 milligrams to 3 milligrams, you have to do it slowly, 0.25 milligrams at a time. Other horses are just kind of bomb-proof as far as that goes, and you can go from 2 milligrams to 3 milligrams all at once and not have an issue. Wow. You know, I was lucky with my guys when I was increasing later in their lives. I would increase by 3 milligrams at a time all at once. But that was, they were up at a high dose already, so, and they never got the veil. But that's just because they were not kind of susceptible to that kind of thing. If you have a horse that does get that perglide veil, the APF is gold. It is just such a good thing. And we're not, we, we have no affiliation with that company. We just know it works. Yeah. So I just have two questions left. Um, the first one is, say you have a horse that is actively laminitic. What are your first steps for, uh, you know, that horse that's actively in pain? Well, so... In my case, where I was just dealing with EMS and high insulin, uh, the number one thing to do is get the insulin down as quickly as possible. Now, remember that insulin rises and falls during the day, and it rises and falls in lockstep with the carbohydrate in the diet. So uh, there's a really good study out there showing that it was by Bridget McIntosh showing that normal horses on pasture and how their insulin rises and fall with the sugar content of the of the pasture over the course of a day and over several months showing that there's higher sugar in the months of April and May than, than um, uh, later months. And then also a control group that was just eating hay and those horses on hay, their insulin was steady. So you want to avoid those wild swings of, of insulin. So obviously, first thing you have to do is get them off pasture and then put them on a hay diet, feeding them one and a half to two percent of their body weight in hay. Now, ideally, the hay should be tested uh, to make sure that the uh, sugar and starch content is below 10 percent. Um, there's no reason to go out and buy really bad hay. Ninety-seven percent of the hays that I have in my database, dry matter is less than 10 percent 10% sugar and starch combined. So you just take the percentage of ESC, which is the sugar content, and starch, and you sum those two together. And if those percentages are less than 10% in the as sampled or as fed column, then that hay is safe to feed. So like I said, 97% of those before soaking are, are less than 10%. Now, you can soak the hay. That has two purposes. One, it will lower the carbohydrates even lower, which is great if, if you have high insulin driving the laminitis. You want to get the carbohydrates as low as possible. You can soak the hay for 30 minutes in hot water or an hour in cold water. Drain the water off. See that's okay. And, you know, if your horse is in a lot of pain and they're not drinking a lot, then it helps to have a, you know, soaked hay, moistened hay. Get a little more liquid into them. So that's, that's the most important thing to do right away. And then the rest of it, I mean, we also recommend some supplements like uh, five grams of magnesium per day, which is roughly about a tablespoon. And then make sure that they have adequate access to salt and vitamin E. 
Uh, and that's what we call the emergency diet. So you put them on that right away, and the goal there is just to get the insulin down as quickly as possible. Then in the meantime, you know, you have your vet out, you manage the laminitis, you test whether it's PPID or high insulin, and then getting the insulin down, and then and then you're kind of in it for the long haul. Uh, and then once the horse is recovered, which could be, you know, six months, a year later, whenever that new, new growth comes out and the foot is well-supported, prevent this from happening again in the future. Yep, and the only thing I would add to that is that in the immediate event where your horse is acutely laminitic and painful, yes, start the temporary emergency diet right away. And for foot comfort, blue styrofoam duct taped onto the bottom of the feet often helps a lot. Or there are therapeutic hoof boots with a gel insert like Easy Care Cloud or Soft Rides or something similar and just your horse doesn't have to be locked in the stall, but if he has access to some nice deep shavings or pea gravel or something to support the feet, if his feet are really sore, he'll be like my guys. He'll just be lying down all the time. And don't worry about that. Let them lie down. Have the hay and water close to them so they can sit up and eat and then lay back, to, you know, go flat again. They don't have to be on their feet. The goal is not to get them on their feet quickly. The goal is to reduce the pain by controlling the diet and by applying correct temporary, hopefully, hoof appliances like styrofoam or boots or something like that. Yeah, I forgot to mention this. What, the next thing I did with Joe was put him in a styrofoam pads under support the bottom of his feet. And literally within 48 hours, you know, he was back. He was wanting out, but sorry, he didn't get out. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important to note, too, that there seems to be a, a consensus that once your horse is, quote, sound, unquote, i.e., they're no longer painful and they're walking without pain, you can start riding. You should not ride or lunge a horse that has had an acute laminitis for 6 to 12 months afterwards because you need at least a half of tight, normal growth before they can support your weight or do anything of that nature. Uh, otherwise, you're just disrupting all the new growth and... and prolonging the agony, so to speak. Yeah. And Kathleen, you taught Joe to drive. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I, since I had to hand, I was hand walking him 30 minutes a day and I got so bored with it, I thought he might as well learn something while we're doing this. So I, I had harness and I put it on him and I got him to drive. So I, we did a lot, we still did a lot of walking, but it was, he was wearing harness and I was walking behind him doing line driving for, for several months. So, so yeah, there, you know, there's a, there's a bright side. Something else I wanted to mention, though, was a lot of people, and including myself when this happened, think that this is a death sentence. There's no way out and that your horse has to be confined to a dry lot for the rest of their life and, and they can only eat really bad hay and, and, you know, and on and on and on. And the name of our conference is No Laminitis. And, you know, usually what brings us to, these, to the ECIR group is laminitis. Goal is to prevent it from ever happening again, and with the right kind of management, you can prevent it. If you can manage the insulin and the ACTH in these metabolic disorders, you can prevent laminitis, and your horse can live a long life, a long and useful life, and a happy one. And uh, it's it's just a win-win. Um, yep, amen to that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So my, you know, those are most of the, the topics I wanted to cover. So sort of my closing question is if either of you have any advice for horse owners and I think some of you touched upon you know that laminitis is in a death sentence and and 
you know, ways to approach it. Uh, but do you have any last comments in regards to advice for horse owners? Janie, you want to go first? Sure. I would just say um, be aware of your horse's condition. Don't let the fatty puff condition creep up on you because many of us get used to seeing fat horses. Obesity does not necessarily cause insulin resistance or EMS. However, if your horse is EMS, obesity will definitely make it worse. And we're so used to seeing fat horses that it becomes a normal. Train your eye to notice if your horse has a crest, if they have a fatty sheath, if they have anything like that, um, and keep your horse at a good weight. That that will go a long way towards preventing problems. And also, if you do notice something kind of weird, oh, you know, he's a little bit ouchy on gravel or whatever, jump on that and investigate what's going on. Boy, amen to that. Mm. Yeah. So what I want to remind people is that laminitis is a symptom of something else. You know, a lot of people, when, when the horse gets laminized, they just focus on the feet. You know, like, we're going to do this corrective shoeing, we're going to do this corrective trimming, we're going to do this, we're going to do this the feet, the feet, the feet. So most laminitis is caused by metabolic disorders. And so you're never going to fix the laminitis if you don't fix what's causing it. So get to the root of the, get the diagnosis, find out what's, what's triggering that laminitis if it's, if it's insulin. Then you have, you know, your number one goal, yes, you need to support the feet, but absolutely you have to get control of insulin, and that comes through through the diet. And there's no reason to starve your horse or, or feed them really bad hay or anything like that. They need just as nutritious of a diet, maybe restricted calories, definitely restricted carbohydrates, but that's easy to do. And, uh, you know, just unfortunately, we've... Most of the people that come to us come to us in a crisis, so that's going to happen. It happens all the time, and, and uh, we hate to see it happen, but it will happen. And so come to the ECIR group, go to the outreach group, read the website. There are people there willing to help, and, and uh, just come there if you need help. Yep, I agree with that. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was great. You answered all my questions and more, even some that I didn't even have on my list. So I think this is really helpful. Um, and thanks again for being willing to do it. Awesome. All right. Yeah. All right. Have a great rest of your day. Uh-huh. Thank you. Bye. 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 I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person. And chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.